Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, May the 9th. It is Mother's Day. And so a very happy Mother's Day out there to all of our mothers. In particular, want to say happy Mother's Day to my mother, to Sandra Yawn, who is part of our fellowship and listens to us in Rock Hill, South Carolina. I love you, Mom, and happy Mother's Day to you. We continue looking at our study of Hebrews. Today we pick up chapter 4, verses 14, through the 10th chapter of 10th verse of chapter 5 of Hebrews. In our last time together, we learned of a new and radical principle of human behavior, which every true follower of Jesus will learn and practice in this present life, or the absence of it will prove that they have never had a real conversion to following Christ to begin with. This principle, then, is not an option. It's not something that we can choose to accept or ignore. It is the whole goal. It is of, of all of God's work in human hearts. This principle is called in Hebrews, the rest of God. It is activity out of rest. It is to cease from our self-directed activities, that, that principle on which we've lived our, our lives ever since we were babies, convinced that we had what it takes to do what we wanted to do, or at least could get what it takes from some other source. But this new principle made available to us only in Jesus Christ means to cease, to stop our self-directed activities and to trust in the ability of the Holy Spirit to work through us. What we're talking about is, is exactly what faith is. Every one of us have been exercising faith ever since we came into the church this morning. We've been trusting in the work of another person. You know, I watch pretty carefully but I did not see a single one of us pick up one of those chairs and examine it to see whether or not it would support us if we sat on it. We took it by faith. We exercised trust in the maker of the chair. We do not have the least idea who they are, whether they are a trustworthy or an untrustworthy person. We have simply taken it for granted and have been exercising a faith which has been supporting us all along. You see, we make faith so difficult, but it is simply trusting in the work of another. And that is what the life of rest is. It is trusting in Jesus who has come to dwell, to live in our hearts, to do through us all that we do, using the functions of our, our personality, all the giftedness that we have, whatever, and, and, and to do that through him because of him. That is rest. The previous section in Hebrews close with verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This one with whom we have to do, Jesus Christ, you see, he knows us thoroughly. He sees everything about us. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. We are absolutely open and naked before him. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what when temptation is, is heavy on us, when we are being harassed and irritated by the kids or, or by the boss or our mother-in-law and are about to explode. He knows we will be strongly tempted to give way, to fight back, to lose our temper, say things that we shouldn't. Jesus knows 
that when we are treated unfairly, perhaps have done the right thing, but are blamed for it, maybe even insulted over it, that there is a strong, almost sometimes an overpowering urge to strike back, to get even, to do something to even the score. He knows that there is in the human heart a great hunger for acceptance by those around us, that we are very uncomfortable when we're in a crowd of people and we feel that we must act differently than, than they do, than the crowd. He knows how we want to be accepted by people around us. He knows, too, that under those circumstances of pressure, we tend to excuse our failure by saying, I tend to excuse my failure by saying, well, I know I should lean in on the Lord. I know I know that, but, but the provocation here is just too great. I can take it up to a point. You can poke the bear so many times, but that last poke, if it gets too strong, I know I'm going to give in. Because of this tendency to excuse myself when the pressure gets too great, the writer of Hebrews now says, in effect, I want you to take a closer look at the great high priest who is our strength, our refuge, our fortress, and is our enabler. So let me read from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Jesus, the great high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. For, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then be confident, with confidence, drawn near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Four words in that brief passage sum up all that it is that it has to say. The throne of grace. The throne of grace. Here is the throne of grace. A throne, well, that speaks of authority, power. And while grace conveys the idea of sympathy and understanding, these two thoughts are combined in Jesus Christ. He is a man. He is of infinite power, yet in complete and utter sympathy with us. He said himself after his resurrection, all power is given to me in heaven and in earth. That's Matthew 28, 18. His title here is Jesus, the son of God, possessing the fullness of, of deity of holiness, of godliness, of being God. But more than that, he is the one who has passed through the heavens. And this space age, this new space age that we're, we're entering in with SpaceX and NASA and all of these programs, this phrase could catch our eye. You see, Jesus not only passed into the heavens, but through the heavens. This is the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. But the claim made for Jesus is that he passed through the heavens. He has passed outside the limits of time and space. He's no longer contained within, limited by those boundaries that hold us within physical limits. He is outside. He is above, beyond, over. So there are no limits to his power. And the idea that's conveyed to us in this figurative speech of the scriptures that, that is that heaven is outside of time and space. So, so it can be within us as well as around us, above us, and beyond us. You see, the throne of grace is not 
in remote space. It's not some way far out there. It is right in the heart of a believer in whom Jesus Christ lives, dwells. To come to the throne of grace does not mean to go into a prayer closet, shut the door, and hammer out an appeal across the reaches of space to some distant point in heaven. No, it means to call on the one who lives within us. The throne of grace is that close and that available to us. The writer also makes clear that through, though Jesus has passed into the place of supreme power, he has absolutely no limits upon his ability to work. He also is tremendously concerned with our, with mine, with your problems. He says, we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities in some translations. We do not have, he says, a priest who is remote, who is isolated, who does not understand what we are going through. Previously in the letter, Jesus has been called the pioneer of our salvation. That's chapter 2, verse 10. This is the thought of that phrase here. He's already gone the whole course before us. He has felt every pressure. He has known every pull. He has been drawn by every temptation that we face. He has been frightened by every fear, experienced every anxiety, depressed by every worry, yet he did it all without failure, without sinning. Never, never once did he fall. So, the writer says, let us draw near with boldness, with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help every time we need it. That is, all the time. Every help we need. Every time we need it. Now, it's right at this point that the tempter, Satan, pulls an unbelievably cruel trick. He suggests to us a limitation which we hardly, we, we hardly let ourselves even think about. That there perhaps is that, quote unquote, one area in which Jesus did not undergo the same temptation that we have. Of course, Jesus never failed, Satan would suggest, because he had one great advantage over you. He had no sin nature. Deep, deep in our subconscious, hardly, hardly allowing it to come to the surface, we feel that uh, there's a pressure, a temptation, there's a hurt that we can experience that he has never felt. And there's a power exerted on us that he does not somehow understand. And that doubt pops up in times of pressure and says to us, says to me, says to you, go on, give in. You can't fight this to the end. You're weak in this area. You don't have the strength to stand. The Lord will forgive you because after all, that's his job. So go ahead and give in. You're too weak, too human to resist. To answer that subtle argument fully, the writer of Hebrews brings to us the qualifications of a high priest. So reading from chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Well, we, can, we can kind of move through this rather briefly. The writer is not speaking of Jesus Christ. He is speaking 
or he is listing rather the or she he or she they the writer of Hebrews is listing the regulations the qualifications the prerequisites to be a priest in Israel here we learn what a priest really is perhaps we think of a priest as you know a man wearing a long black robe with collar turned backwards but that has nothing to do with priesthood perhaps we think the purpose of a priest is to baptize Mary and bury, or as I've heard it put by an old Baptist preacher, to hatch, match, and dispatch. But that's not the task of a priest. The qualifications for a priest are right here. First of all, a person, a priest must be first a man, a person, in order to represent men. To this end, Jesus laid aside his glory as, as God, though he was equal with God, Scripture tells us, and as Paul tells us, and he humbled himself and became a man. He entered the human race as a baby in Bethlehem. Secondly, a priest must offer sacrifices. That is, he must deal with the problem that separates man from God. He must come to grips with the awful universal problem of guilt. For this is the cloud over our lives that haunts us, that stays with us, that that dogs our footsteps, that brings us into bondage every time we turn around. It is the uni- it is universal among mankind. No man has ever been known that does not have and suffer from a sense of guilt. And the answer to guilt is a life sacrificed, and a priest must offer that sacrifice. Well, Jesus eminently and adequately fulfilled this in the cross when he himself became not only the priest, but the sacrifice. He offered himself through the eternal spirit of God as a sacrifice for the guilt of mankind. The third qualification of a priest is that he must himself be beset, the scripture says, with weakness and sin in order that he might understand the problems of others. In other words, he has to be a suffering servant. Well, here's the problem, is it not? How could Jesus Christ fulfill this and still be sinless? How could he live as a man and never sin and yet understand how we feel when we sin? This is the area that the enemy, that Satan, tries to seize on and to kind of wiggle his way in and dislodge our faith when we come into these times of intense pressure and intense trial. And the fourth qualification of a priest is that he must be appointed by God. One does not take that honor upon himself, but is called by God just as Aaron was, the scripture says. No man can ordain priests, only God can. The purpose of a priest then is to cleanse and strengthen to make us fit for life. And if a priest does not do that, well, then that priest is worthless. He must make men fit for life. And in the last section, verses 5 through 10, reveals the credentials of Jesus, the way he fully and adequately met every requirement of priesthood. So hear this, verses 5 through 10 of chapter 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designed by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
these two quotation point, quotations answer points one and four of, of the qualifications that we listed earlier. Begotten, begotten as a baby in the womb of Mary and was born in Bethlehem. Jesus became a man, fully one with us in the essential humanity of our life. At the age of 30, he entered into the priesthood, not the priesthood of Aaron, but a new order called Melchizedek, of which we will learn much more as we go on and keep going through Hebrews. The, this priesthood was predicted in the scriptures and fulfilled when Jesus entered into his ministry and then set about to do his, his father's will. He was appointed by God for this work. Verses 7 through 8 take up this crucial matter. How could he never sin? How could he never sin yet fully sympathize with sinners, with you and with me? In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How can he sympathize? How does he understand our pressures if he has never sinned? The answer to that leads us to the dark, dark shadows of Gethsemane. There is no other incident in the Gospels that fits the description of this passage, where with prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears, he cried unto him who was able to save him from death. So as the Lord and, and his disciples left the upper room, they passed through the dark valley of the Kidron up unto the side of the Mount of Olives to an olive tree grove where it was his custom to go. He was, uh, he was there a lot. And separating three of the more sensitive of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, he, he leaves with them and goes deeper, deeper shadows of the garden. And they followed a time of, excruciating torment of spirit that found expression in loud involuntary cries streaming tears and ended in this terrible bloody sweat so here we come face to face with mystery and as cavemen call cavemen's call the band used to say in some of their songs the problem that i have with these mysteries is they're so mysterious there is first the total unexpectedness of this to jesus he had gone to the garden, as was his custom, Scripture tells us. But there he had suddenly began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Nothing like this is recorded before in other parts of the Scripture, of the Gospels. And his anticipation of what he would be going through and his explanations of it to the disciples, he had never once mentioned Gethsemane. Furthermore, there's no prediction of this in the Old Testament. There is, there's a lot, there's a lot that predicts where he would go, that what he would go through on the cross. There's not one word of what he endured in the garden. So in the midst of this bafflement, this puzzlement, deep unrest of heart and distress of his soul, he does an unusual and amazing thing. For the first time in his ministry, he appealed to his own disciples for help. He said to them, watch with me, pray with me. He asked them to lift him up in prayer as he went further into the shadows, falling down to his knees and then to his face, crying out before God the Father. And there he prayed three separate times, and each prayer is a questioning of the necessity of this experience. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. 
He was asking God the Father to make clear to him whether this was a a necessary activity. So unexpected was this, so suddenly had this come on him, baffling him, confusing him, bewildering him, just as sudden experiences and catastrophes come and bewilder us. To deepen the mystery of this, there's this awful intensity of this struggle. This passage in Hebrews clearly implies that the Lord here is facing the full misery which sin produces in the heart of the sinner while he is alive what we call the sense of sin. And I think we can, I think we can take this a little bit further even. The, the threefold period of wrestling in the garden suggests that he was, he was here being exposed to the full intensity of what makes sin in our lives so defeating, so unshakable, that, that, that makes up a sense of, of sin. In other words, shame, guilt, and despair. Well, what is shame? Who who of us have not felt it? Shame is a sense of my own defilement. It is an awareness of my own unfitness. It is is self-contempt. It is a loathing of myself. It is not being able to look myself in the mirror because I have been false to my standards, to my ideals. And as Jesus went into the darkness of the garden and fell on his face, suddenly for the first time in his experience, he began to feel shame, not his shame, but mine. All the naked filth of human depravity forced itself on him. And and he felt the burning, searing shame of our misdeeds as though they were his own. So no wonder he trembled in agony and amazement and, and sought to, to leave. He, and he cried to the Father, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass before me. Nevertheless, he adds, not my will, but your will be done. Luke twenty two forty two. Remember that he came then to the disciples and he, and he woke them up with almost a plea to watch with him. Could you not watch with me but one hour, he said in Matthew 26, 40. Returning again to the shadows, a greater inward horror came upon him. He begins to feel a sense of guilt. Not his guilt, but mine. What is guilt? Guilt is a sense of injury done to someone else. Guilt is the awareness of damage that I have caused to the innocent or the undeserving. Jesus was forced to the ground by an overwhelming sense of dark and awful guilt. He felt himself perhaps a culprit before God. He felt himself a child of wrath, eminently deserving judgment. He, he writhed in silent torment among the olives. And Mark tells us that he began to pray more earnestly than ever before. Father, since this cup cannot pass from me, then thy will be done. Matthew 26, 42. Once again, he came back to his disciples and finding them sleeping, he went back. He, he didn't wake them, but he, he let them go ahead and just sleep at this point. And the third of experience of agony was perhaps the worst of all. Before it was, before it began, the father sent an angel to strengthen him. This is what is meant in the words here. He, he has heard for his godly fear, crying out to the father in, in his deep and desperate need. And the father answered and strengthened him through an angel. And when the angel had finished ministering to him, and the third and most terrible experience began, Jesus, our Lord, began to know despair. Not his despair, but mine. The iron bands of sin, of sin's enslaving power, 
were fully felt. He was crushed under a sense of hopelessness, of helpless discouragement, of complete defeat. His eyes filled with tears. His mouth was opened in an involuntary, agonized cries. His heart was crushed so that the blood was literally forced from his veins and his sweat fell to the ground in great bloody drops. And this explains the strange words, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned what it means to obey God when every cell in his body wanted to disobey, when everything within him cried out to leave this experience. Yet knowing this to be the will of God, he obeyed, trusting God to see him through. He learned what it feels like to hang on when failure makes us want to throw the whole thing over. When we are so defeated, when we're so despairing, so angry with ourselves, so filled with shame, self-loathing, and guilt that we want to forget the whole thing. He knows what this is like. He went the whole way. He took the full brunt of it. You and I will never pass through a Gethsemane like he went through. He went the whole distance. Verse 9 carries us on the cross, being made perfect, having entered into all that any sinner in all his weakness ever knows, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That is the language of discipleship. When we obey him as he obeyed the Father, then all that God is is made available to us just as in the hour of his anguish. All that God is was made available to him on this principle of trust. How did he win? On the same principle that is laid before us, he absolutely refused to question the Father's wisdom. He refused to strike back at God, to blame him, to say this was unfair. He took no refuge in unbelief, even though this came suddenly and unexpectedly on him. Instead, he threw himself on the Father's loving, tender care, looked to, to him to sustain him. And when he did, he was brought safely through and was then perfected for priesthood. So we read, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. No matter how deep, how serious that need may be, he can fully meet it, even though we may be at our wit's end. In Psalm 107, there's this wonderful verse. At their wit's end, they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out. It is at wit's end corner, driven by the Holy Spirit into the place where the pressure is so great that we have no other recourse but to cry out to God for help, that at last we begin to learn. It breaks on my dull and my slow mind that this help is not something intended for emergency situations only. It's not just a parachute. This dependence on him has, is the very principle on which God expects me, us, to meet every circumstance. That, then, is how we enter into rest. To close our time 
I read from Romans 15 and from Isaiah 41. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Amen. God bless and go in peace.